Acts chapter 28, verse 31. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. So in uh, 2003, Fox gave a shot to this new sitcom called Arrested Development. And uh, it gained a cult following, but it was a small following. And so for a major network like Fox, they weren't entirely sure that that was worth it. So after season three, they right midway of the script and the storyline just canceled the show. And what was intended to be a season finale then got rebranded as a series finale. And the show just ended mid-plot with no one properly tying all the threads together. Netflix then picked up that show that was canceled. It got watched by the masses and became far more popular after it was canceled than it ever was while it was airing. And it became so popular, in fact, that Netflix was able to uh, financially incentivize the entire cast to get back together to film a couple final seasons and to give the show its proper ending. And so they gave the people what they wanted. More laughs and all the threads getting tied together. But in comparison to the anticipation, these two new seasons kind of flopped. And in hindsight, it turned out that the abrupt ending was the proper one all along. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's the final verse in the book of Acts. If this was a television series, here's where the cameras would pan out and Morgan Freeman's voice would be reading that scripture as the credits begin to roll. There are other translations that use the single word unhindered. That's the word that the book of Acts ends with. Is that a joke? Because contextually, at this moment in the life of the church, the church is looking very, very hindered. I mean, Paul is living under house arrest, a long, corrupt legal nightmare, interrupted a revival, and that's where it landed him. Now, I've heard plenty of sermons on the book of Acts. That it's loaded with dream passages for preachers, but basically no one preaches from the last third of the book. Because in the last third, Paul gets arrested on a bogus charge, and then he spends way too much time bouncing between Roman courts and Jewish courts. On the way to one trial, he gets shipwrecked, and the whole ordeal finally lands him living under house arrest in the city of Rome, where he dies without ever being granted his freedom. Acts ends just like arrested development. It just suddenly gets canceled right in between seasons without all the threads getting tied together. And we're left going, I've invested hours in these characters. Come on, Luke, give me a proper ending here, man. Unhindered. Are you kidding? I mean, they took off the handcuffs, but the de facto leader of the Christian church lives with his parole officer. He's not even allowed to walk out the front door. He's been obsessed over getting the gospel to Rome through all the major movements and climactic scenes of the story. And now that he's finally there, he's staying in a dingy Airbnb that he can't see beyond the four walls of. And the passage that immediately precedes this verse, the context we're given, is that he finally is able to gather all of the Jews within the city of Rome. They come to meet him in the house, and he preaches the sermon that's gone so well on every other stop on the revival tour, and it falls flat. 
They disagreed among themselves and began to leave. That's the response Paul got in Rome. Not exactly an altar call moment. Oh, and the few Christians that are meeting in secret tiny house churches throughout the city are being actively hunted down and martyred by Emperor Nero, who's got it out for the early church. I mean, come on, guys. We had a great start, but is it more honest just to admit that our best days are behind us at this point? So Acts may start with tongues of fire, but it ends as a Shakespearean tragedy or maybe a black comedy, but unhindered, it's definitely not that. In the original language, the English unhindered is the Greek akolaitos, which most directly means freely. A pretty ironic word to describe a prisoner. And so today I want to offer you an entire sermon on just a single word. I. Howard Marshall writes in his commentary on Acts, all the emphasis lies on that last phrase. And so he, a New Testament scholar, claims that the entire book of Acts is just a 28-chapter setup for understanding a single word, unhindered. That Luke, the author of Acts, is trying to baptize our imaginations. He's trying to immerse us in the story of resurrection. Uh, to not, not just as like a one-time magic trick that God pulled off, but as the new pattern for the way God gets his work done. And so as a church living under house arrest, because, I mean, house arrest, quarantine-induced isolation, what is the difference really? Experientially, this is where we find ourselves. And sure, I mean, we are beginning to see some light at the end of the tunnel, right? I mean, as the state of things inch back toward normalcy, we as a church are increasingly beginning to regather, and that in so many ways breathes life back into this community. And in other ways, it kind of knocks the wind out of us. Because as we regather, we also survey the damage. The people that are gone now that were with us before the feeling that some will carry that they're a stranger and a people that used to feel like a family. And this whole new building thing was really, really exciting when it was an idea, but now I'm coming back together, and what if it doesn't feel like it used to feel? And there's new staff around that I've only ever known as a face on a screen as I sat on my couch at home, and our fearless leader, John Mark, he's in the midst of a long goodbye. And so as we regather as a church, the gap between what I expected and what I was planning and what actually is will be exposed. And Paul had plans too. In Romans 15, we read this. Since I've been longing for many years to visit you, he's talking to the Romans, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. So Paul was planning on getting to Rome via Barcelona where he was gonna have bruschetta on the beach and then pop over to Rome to see the sights. And instead, he got there caged as a prisoner in transport. And then he saw Rome, but never beyond the four walls of the house that he was imprisoned in. He made it exactly where he was planning to go, but make no mistake about it, this was not the plan. And so there he sits under house arrest with a mixture of real resurrection hope and honest human grief alive within him at the same time. And the biblical invitation to people like Paul at a time like that, and to people like us at a time like this, isn't perseverance or stamina or grit or wanting it bad enough or fighting this thing. It's open your eyes. Right now, in the midst of these constraints, Jesus and his kingdom 
are unhindered. We are participants in a kingdom that advances freely against every force in this world, and the most powerful moments are always preceded by the blackest darkness. That's where we're going today. I've given away the punchline right up front, unhindered. I, I wanna show you why that one word is more than just a fairy tale ending or a Lombardi halftime speech, but it is real life and a real invitation to us right here and right now. This is Pentecost Sunday. It's the annual celebration of the birth of the church through the giving of the Holy Spirit. Usually this is that Sunday when we read from the beginning of Acts, the opening scene with all the hope and the promise. But this year, I think we're better suited to see it from the end of Acts, that final scene where the Spirit is working just as powerfully, but perhaps in more unfamiliar territory. And so I wanna tell you this final scene through four primary lenses, the author, the gospel, the sequel, and the invitation. So first, the author. There are four gospels in the Bible, meaning there's four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now Luke is distinct among the four gospel authors in a couple of different ways. One is that only Luke wrote a sequel, Acts. That's where our teaching text comes from. And Luke actually structures his sequel as an exact mirroring of his gospel. But we'll get there. He's retelling the same story just through new characters. But we'll get there. Secondly, among the gospel authors, Luke places by far the heaviest emphasis on the Holy Spirit. He's got nearly as many references to the Holy Spirit as Matthew, Mark, and John do combined. And in the book of Acts, he ups the ante from 17 direct references to the Spirit in his gospel to 57 in his sequel. So the question is, why is Luke so obsessed with the third member of the Trinity? Well, we know this. We know that Luke was a Gentile. In fact, he's the only known Gentile author in all of the Bible. And the Gentiles as a people group were thought to be outside of God's promises until they were grafted in by the Holy Spirit. So Luke was an outsider looking in. He was marginalized in the Judeo-Christian story for centuries until the Holy Spirit is God's action to say, Luke, you belong here. I've saved a seat for you at my table. So this expression of God was very personal for him. And to understand the power of this one word invitation that he ends his two volume documentary with, unhindered, we actually have to get the broad strokes of both Luke and Acts. So first, the gospel. Now, I know that a, a long time ago, a whole bunch of scholars that knew the Bible a lot better than I do broke Luke into 24 chapters. But to be honest, I think they probably could have done it in six. So I'm going to give it to you in those six. Chapter one, birth. So the story opens with the Holy Spirit invisibly active. Luke records... Uh, Two miraculous conceptions, the birth of Jesus and the birth of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. Each birth is a miracle, but they're miracles at opposite ends of the spectrum. Elizabeth, John's mom, was barren and postmenopausal. So this birth was a medical miracle. Mary, Jesus' mom, was a virgin, so this birth was a biological miracle. 
An angel shows up to explain the details of it. Gabriel visits Elizabeth first, and then Mary, and a whole choir of angels breaks out on the night of Jesus' birth. Seven times, just during that opening sequence, Luke references the Holy Spirit as the invisible actor behind all of those events. So the story starts this way. Angelic explanation followed by the Holy Spirit invisibly active in ordinary people for eternal purposes. Chapter 2, Prophecy. The narrative jumps ahead. Jesus is now 30, and he shows up at the temple and reads from the revered prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. There's the Holy Spirit again. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he says, and I'm the guy Isaiah was talking about. I'm here to fulfill the promises of all the prophets. Just watch. Chapter three, proof. Next, there's a whole bunch of stories where Jesus is doing exactly what he said he would do. He's teaching, especially teaching those who were discarded by all the other rabbis. He's proclaiming good news to the poor. He's freeing the oppressed and the accused. He's giving sight to the blind, both literally and spiritually, and ushering in a wave of God's favor. All of that culminates in the raising of a dead man named Lazarus, a sign of things to come. Chapter four, trial. While Jesus is doing all of that, he's building a favorable reputation with the poor and a very unfavorable one with the powerful. And eventually a false charge gets drummed up and he's arrested. He then bounces between Roman courts and Jewish courts, between Caesar's law and Moses' law. He's batted around by the political powers on trial. He's questioned by the high priest Caiaphas, the Roman governor Pilate, and then King Herod Antipas. Exhausted by trying to figure out all these complex religious accusations, they eventually just crucify him. Chapter five, tragedy. In Jesus' crucifixion, the very same people mentioned celebrating at the beginning of the story are the ones at the cross grieving at the end. Luke opens with Mary and Elizabeth dancing and singing in response to the prophecies and promises that they have been written into. And John's gospel ends with Mary and Elizabeth standing in the shadow of Jesus' cross, both of these mothers who danced and sang in the opening scene are now grieving and weeping near the end. Those children of promise, both buried by their mothers. What a promising start. What a disorienting ending. One of the things I respect most about the Bible is just that it's unapologetically honest. See, Jesus' death was a tragedy to everyone. No one was expecting resurrection. No one saw this as a key role in redemption. His disciples scatter. Peter's denying ever knowing him. Judas, wrecked with guilt, is taking his own life. Thomas ghosts the rest of them because doubt makes their company unbearable to him. The women who were in his inner circle are preparing the burial spices. They're getting ready for a funeral. They're not thinking about resurrection. No one's thinking redemption. Everyone's just gut-punched by loss. Chapter 6, Unhindered. Of course, you know the ending. The, the final scene is not one of death, it's one of resurrection, and this story is not a tragedy, it's a triumph. The cross becomes the tool by which Jesus defeats death. When he carried that cross on his back, he was not just carrying a wooden beam, he was carrying all of creation. 
He was carrying all the consequences of every human wrong. He was holding the weight of the world suffering. And along with his hands and feet, that's what got nailed down to the cross. The twist ending of the Jesus story is that the most tragic moment became the most powerful moment. Now, the sequel. Luke's second book, Acts, is a mirror story, so I'm going to give it to you in six familiar chapters. Chapter one, birth. The story opens with the Holy Spirit invisibly active. The Spirit descends on a few ordinary people in an ordinary prayer meeting uh, in an upstairs room on a seedy street in old Jerusalem. But first, just so they would know it's legit, angels show up to break down the events that are about to happen to them. Suddenly, two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Then God made good on the promise to give birth to a community the same way he'd given birth to a savior. The Holy Spirit descended on the womb of a virgin named Mary and Jesus was born. Approximately 33 years later, the Holy Spirit descended on the collective womb of ordinary men and women in an upper room and the church was born. And so the sequel begins the same way the gospel did. Miraculous conception, angels making promises, and something divine gets disguised in human flesh. Chapter 2, prophecy. Jesus started his ministry by drawing on the words of Isaiah, saying, Now, now. This is when God's going to do this, right now, right before your very eyes. The church begins when Peter draws on another prophet, Joel, to say, Now. God's doing this right now, right before your very eyes. That's what happened on the original day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Chapter 3, proof. Next, there's a whole bunch of stories where the early church is doing exactly what Jesus did. They're teaching, especially teaching those who were discarded by the other rabbis. They're proclaiming good news to the poor. They're freeing the oppressed and the accused. Occasionally, even their own jail cells are flying open. There's miraculous healings and signs and wonders, and they're ushering in a wave of God's favor, and the church is exploding like no ideology or movement has before or since. Luke's gospel culminates with the raising of a dead man named Lazarus, a sign of what's to come. The sequel um, culminates with the raising of a dead teenager named Eutychus, a sign of what's to come. Is this looking familiar? It should. I'm giving you a whole lot of the Bible just so we can trace this one theme. Luke wrote a sequel. He, He wrote a story of a community that embodied the story of Jesus. That's the church. That's what she was at her best. That's what she still is at her best. Luke wrote his gospel to show us what Jesus began to do and teach. He wrote Acts to show us what Jesus continues to do and teach in and through a community of people filled with his very spirit. In case you're not convinced, I'm going to keep going. Chapter 4, trial. The apostle Paul became the new enemy of the same people that opposed Jesus. They drum up a bogus religious charge against him and have him arrested for questioning. And from there, Paul's experience in the justice system is identical to Jesus's. He bounces between Roman courts and Jewish courts, between Caesar's law and Moses's law. On trial, Paul is questioned by the same authorities that questioned Jesus. Now, the people occupying the offices have changed, but they are the same officers questioning him, he appears before the high priest Ananias, the Roman governor Felix, and King Herod Agrippa II, the great nephew of Antipas who questioned Jesus. A couple of other officials get involved along the way too. The same women who danced and prophesied at Jesus' birth on the first page were mourning on the last page, remember? 
The promise of the church's conception back on page one of Acts was, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Just flip then to the last page of the book, and we read this. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. But anyone reading the story, paying even a tiny bit of attention, would immediately say, come on, really? I mean, is this really what you had in mind, God? House arrest and political corruption. Is this the power that you promised would take the gospel of grace and forgiveness to the ends of the earth? Because this feels a whole lot like the power of corrupt politics, backwards religion, and oppressive armed forces. Aren't these the very forces that the kingdom of God was supposed to not be able to be stopped by? And in all fairness, aren't they winning? Chapter five, tragedy. Jesus was crucified, Paul never got set free. He died under house arrest, guarded by a Roman soldier. The greatest church planter in history is gonna spend his final days behind bars for bringing a marginalized Gentile into the inner room of the temple. That's what Paul got arrested for. He treated someone who was told that you were excluded from the promises of God for your race like they were a brother. They arrested him for it. So how could God not deliver him? I mean, this is the same God who a few chapters ago opened up his own jail cell while he was singing hymns at midnight with Silas. Surely the church gathered for prayer meetings for Paul's freedom, right? So why answer the prayers then but not now? How could God let Paul's story end this way? How could God let all the momentum of the church stop right here? Why wouldn't God deliver him? What a promising start. What a disorienting ending. Chapter six, unhindered. See, as it turns out, Luke's ending is not a series getting canceled between seasons. It's the best kind of ending. It's a resurrection kind of ending. Because Acts ends expecting resurrection power even before it happens. Luke's final line is an absurd prediction. The message of the gospels gotten into the walls of Rome, game over. Never mind the fact that it's locked away in solitary confinement, the Trojan horse is inside the castle, the rest is history. No force in this world can resist the kingdom of God. And Luke's absurd prediction actually hit uh, once the gospel was behind enemy lines, the rest actually was history. The early church slowly brought the Roman Empire to its knees. Historians, both Christian and secular, are in agreement that the message of selfless love that came from the early church slowly spread within the Roman Empire until it decayed it from within. And this greatest empire in history fell down and surrendered before a king with a cross, not one with a sword. The twist ending of the sequel is the same as the gospel. The most tragic moment became the most powerful moment. You see, all of that, this two-volume documentary from Luke near the beginning of the New Testament, builds up to this one-word invitation, unhindered. Get in on this resurrection way of seeing and living in this world. It's an invitation to know resurrection not only as a historical event, but as the theme that defines both redemption in the individual lives of the redeemed and the meta story of redemption. It's the theme that defines what God's doing in the whole world and it's the theme that defines my tiny little life 
in the midst of that grand story. See, all of this is leading up to one great invitation today, and that is to a holy imagination. Luke's been hinting at it on every page of the story, and finally, in his closing remark, he leaves us, the readers, with no other option. He was dropping hints like breadcrumbs all throughout the story of Jesus. Let me just point out one of them to you. On the cross, in the most tragic moment, Jesus prayed the words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But two things happen when he said it that are mostly lost in translation to people like us who are reading this story uh, through a language translation a couple centuries later. And the first is the way Jesus said it. See, on the cross, Jesus didn't pray original words. He was quoting the Psalms. He was quoting a prayer that David wrote some 1,500 years before. But scripture is careful to note that Jesus didn't pray it in the polished Hebrew that David wrote it in. Jesus prayed in Aramaic. He prayed, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. So when Jesus prayed that from the cross, he prayed it in the common language of the pubs and the schoolyards, not in the refined language of the priests who read it in the temple. And according to the scholar Richard Bachman, when Jesus prayed it in Aramaic, he was personalizing an ancient prayer. So he wasn't intellectually noting from the cross, you know, I seem to be experiencing something of what David was referencing all those years before. Instead, he was crying out, his voice echoing across history, past, present, and future, where are you, God? And that's a prayer I can identify with. That's a prayer I've prayed plenty of times before, one I'm bound to pray again. Jesus prays. And he prays not in the confident voice of a rabbi in the temple, but in the quivering, quaking voice of a desperate man out of options as another drop of pink, bloody sweat runs off his nose. And I pray it through a quaking, defeated voice, a desperate and disappointed man out of options and done coming up with excuses for God's silence in the midst of my turmoil and my pleading. John Ortberg writes this, This is a story for people who doubt sometimes, for people who have heard the laughter die, for people who occasionally wonder why God seems disinterested and remote. This is Jesus himself sharing in the experience that we all know too well, that feeling of being forgotten by God. That's the way he said it. And then there's what Jesus didn't say. Because Jesus prayed the first line of the psalm. He prayed verse one and stopped there, but everyone in that majority Jewish crowd would have known where the psalm was going. I mean, this was a psalm that they recited in the temple from childhood. They knew this thing by heart. It would be like saying the first line of the Pledge of Allegiance in front of a room full of of Americans or standing in front of a, a classroom of theater majors and saying, Romeo, Romeo, right? He's making a reference to a prayer that everyone knows by heart. It's a shorthand way of referencing a larger train of thought. And Psalm 22 does start in debilitating isolation and emotional turmoil, but that's not where it ends. It ends not in despair, but in exaltation. Here's the ending. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. 
It ends not in isolation, but in community, in the great assembly or the great congregation, depending on your translation. See, by what Jesus didn't say, he was applying that his experience of God's absence was not the last word. Jesus was telling us that his agony from the cross ends in a community who know deeply and personally that they are seen and heard and remembered by God. Psalm 22 is Jesus' wink from the cross. It was his tell, his absurd prophecy in the midst of his own suffering unhindered. That's what this is. That's what you're looking at right now. That's what you're seeing when I struggle through anxious, sleepless nights as the day approaches. It's what you're seeing when I pray searching prayers for a God who seems distant and silent at the moment. It's what you're seeing when they drive the nails into my hands and feet. It's the kingdom of God expanding freely and without hindrance that you're watching. Hints get dropped like breadcrumbs and acts too. Luke just keeps telling the story the same way. Jesus repeatedly promised that this new community would get its start with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, meaning immersion in the spirit of resurrection. And that was a provocative image. Because at this point in history, baptism was more than just something that occasionally happened in a formal church gathering where a pastor tries not to electrocute someone by dropping the mic into the kiddie pool. Instead, baptism for centuries was a practice reserved exclusively for Gentiles who were converting into the Jewish people. So Gentiles, meaning the outsiders, when somehow by God's grace came into the chosen people, they got baptized. But if you were born a Jew, you were born baptized. So the foreigner being baptized would enter into the waters and belonging to the world, and then they would emerge from those waters consecrated, set apart, Holy. Luke, the author, he's a Gentile, remember? He's probably been baptized. But it's not only his body that was baptized, it's his imagination. Luke expected resurrection. Resurrection, when Jesus took the darkest moment and made it the most powerful moment, that changed everything. And so to be baptized in the Spirit may mean other things, but it certainly means this. It means that resurrection is the new way that we see and understand this world and our lives in it. Because the same Spirit who raised Christ now lives in you and me. So take the events of your ordinary life. Take your routines and your plans, your experiences and your interruptions and then expect that resurrection is the theme running beneath all of it. Expect that God takes the darkest moments of your story and mine, turns them into the most powerful moments, the ones when his kingdom is shared most freely, unhindered. You see, Luke's imagination was baptized into that story. And so he, a Gentile, sees the Apostle Paul in Rome at the nerve center of Gentile culture, and then says, oh, God's done it. I see where this is going. The gospel is inside the castle. I can just let the credits roll right here. That's what a corrupt legal nightmare looks like in the resurrection imagination. The darkest nights are nothing more than a sure sign of the brightest mornings. You see, resurrection is not just a fun story for Easter morning. It's the way God gets his work done. And the Holy Spirit is not just the hair standing up on the back of your neck during the bridge of your favorite worship song. The Holy Spirit 
is resurrection power tucked away in ordinary lives. The Holy Spirit allows us to live real lives in the real world by a resurrection imagination, unhindered. That's the word for all of this. Now, we are a community of mostly sophisticated, cynical urbanites. We are really well-schooled in the ways of this world. If you move to the city from somewhere else, that's almost certainly what got you here, is that you've been immersed in, baptized into the system of this world. A system of power and insider information and manipulation, or what are we calling that now? Networking, right? A system of efficiency and effectiveness and predictability and where getting the credit matters profoundly. A system where setting a plan, executing it flawlessly and then getting the desired result is the working equation. And so as people baptized into this world system, living in a city that champions this world system, we should be sobered by this simple observation that the people who perfected the world's methods are on the wrong side of the Jesus story at every turn. It's the Pharisees who don't recognize the Messiah because they thought he'd be more charismatic and domineering and outwardly powerful than this. It's Herod and all of his descendants who were desperate for an audience with Jesus and then laughed him off when he came into their presence because his version of royalty looks so different than theirs. And it's the Romans who defeated this guy through the cross and he's calling it victory while we sharpen the spear? Come on. You see, if we've got more in common ideologically with that crowd than we do with Jesus, chances are we're missing this king and his kingdom even if it's staring us right in the face. See, I've got a system, even a system with God, and it works for me. I've got a way of relating to him most of the time that produces the desired results for me. It's efficient and predictable and everything that I want it to be. But it can also prevent God from ever getting to the deeper work within me. And so I've been asking myself this question lately. What if the deeper work of God in my life feels like falling apart at first? Do I still want it then? Parker Palmer says this, the deeper our faith, the more doubt we must endure. The deeper our hope, the more prone we are to despair. The deeper our love, the more pain its loss will bring. These are a few of the paradoxes we must hold as human beings. If we refuse to hold them in the hope of living without doubt, faith, or I'm sorry, without doubt, despair, and pain, we also find ourselves living without hope, faith, and love. See, family, we're sick, but it's a sophisticated sickness, the hardest kind to diagnose, and the last kind we want to be healed of. Everyone wants the abundant life of Jesus, everybody. The Pharisees, Herod, even the Romans, but the way there is through a holy imagination. The church has always wanted in on resurrection power, and the church has always struggled to loosen our grip on our more effective ways of getting God's thing done our way. See, the first step in the Christian life is belief. It is that we trust in a God who turned a cross into a victory. But every step after that, the harder and more essential steps on this journey of discipleship uh, mean that we willingly begin to participate in the way God claims that victory. 
This is what Romans 8 is talking about when it says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. You see, the great task of following Jesus and the final invitation that we arrive at at the end of Luke's two-volume documentary is an invitation to step into this upside-down story. Not only to embrace it as true, but to join in, to participate in it today in these circumstances with these people in this place. To participate not only in the victory Jesus won, but the way Jesus claimed and claims that victory. You see, in the invitation of Jesus, it's not to get the gospel understood. Jesus doesn't even invite us to get the gospel spread. He calls us to get it lived, to borrow a phrase from Eugene Peterson. To get this story lived in homes and workplaces and classrooms, in marriages and singleness and through divorce, with children and infertility and loss. To get it lived in promotion and in furlough in upgrades and in just barely making ends meet, in health and in cancer, in peace and conflict and racial unrest and political toxicity and global pandemics and just one more stage of isolation to get it lived through promising starts and disappointing plot twists and to get it lived in tongues of fire and house arrest and everything in between. That's why I'm a pastor. It's not because I really love telling old stories in a modern context and getting them understood. It's because my deep longing is to be one among a people that get this story lived. And here's the only way. The only way that we see this stuff, not just on the dusty streets of the ancient Middle East, but here on the streets of Portland, it's by a holy imagination. We have to let the story Jesus lived inform our expectation for the stories we're living right now. In a word, unhindered. So I, I wanna close with, uh, with the story of my uncle Bobby, who lived a very humble life. He worked as a uh, night shift custodian at a hospital in downtown Nashville. And he was diagnosed with leukemia in his early 40s. He died tragically young at 43, leaving behind a wife and two daughters. And this hospital where he was loved held a short gathering of remembrance for his family and coworkers. And so a few of us like gathered into this hospital room during the night shift and as expected, it was modestly attended. Just a few folks crowded into a little hospital room to share stories and memories. And, as we gathered together, a couple minutes late, this group of uh, strangers, obviously disheveled men, likely houseless, just kind of quietly nudged into the room as well and lined against the back wall. And people are sharing memories about Bobby and, and the way it always kind of happens in environments like this, there's a silence that hangs between the stories as you wait for the next person to speak up. And this one particular silence hung and it was broken by this raspy voice from the back wall. Every winter night, it was one of those disheveled men that walked in late. Every winter night, Bobby brought us blankets on his way into work. He covered us up with them and he picked them up on his way back home early in the morning and he had them laundered 
and then you did it all over again the next night. You see, this group of men had lived under this one particular interstate overpass there in downtown Nashville, and Bobby got off that exit when he went to work, and he noticed them there, huddled, trying to keep warm and sleeping underneath the overpass, and he served them, and he learned their names, and he shared his life, and they shared theirs, and they became friends, and he had apparently been doing this for years, and no one knew, not even his wife. And when that rough around the edges stranger spoke up, the most tragic moment in Bobby's life was suddenly transformed into the most powerful one. And that makeshift memorial in a hospital room became as holy as any cathedral has ever been. And the only reason I know that story about my uncle is because my dad was in attendance there that night. And that voice from the back wall, it transformed him. It's a voice that he'll never forget because he got off at that same exit going to work every day. And he saw that same group of men huddled underneath that same overpass. And he had never done a thing. He had noticed and taken in the challenge and the need. He had noticed the circumstance and was acquainted with real life in this real world, but he hadn't seen God's invitation. He hadn't taken in the scene through a resurrection imagination a holy imagination that imagines that God's still getting his work done today the way he got his work done then. See, Bobby had something he didn't, a holy imagination, resurrection eyes and resurrection hope, not just for a full final redemption, though it includes that, but for participation in resurrection here and now in this place with these people, and that changed him, and he's never forgotten it. And so I won't either. Jesus and his gospel are unhindered. The moment in Bobby's life that seemed least effective by our standards was most effective by God's. It became most fruitful for his kingdom. The twist ending that this author never tires of writing into the plot is that the most tragic moments become the most powerful moments. Resurrection stories get lived and relived and relived and relived. And that and this is the place where God has always done his best work. Right there, in Bobby's hospital memorial, grief and hope were alive together. Paul, under house arrest, living in grief and hope. Jesus, gone in person, but he says he's sending us his spirit, so we're grieving what was and anticipating and hopeful about what will be. Grief and hope living together. Bridgetown coming back together on the other side of a pandemic that took so much more than we're even prepared to name. Excited to be together again, but also surveying the wreckage of what was lost, what was taken Excited about what God did in the past, but also grieving that it's going away and maybe beginning to be hopeful about what God could do in the future. Grief and hope mingled together within each one of us and spread all throughout this community. This is the place God gets his work done. You see, sometimes faith means running wide open and sometimes it means walking slowly through the pitch black, but refusing to quit moving. Sometimes faith means climbing a mountain, and sometimes it just means dangling and hanging on. And sometimes faith baptizes us into imagination like tongues of fire, and sometimes it's just tenacious obedience. It's just resurrection hope in the midst of real grief. And so here's the call on this very unorthodox Pentecost Sunday, unhindered. 
That's what this is. That's what we're living in right now. That's who God is and that's what he names us. That's our story. So let's get it lived. The question of the holy imagination is this. Where is the spirit unhindered while I'm under house arrest? And maybe it's in a relationship with a neighbor or in a deepening life of prayer. Maybe it's in loving and serving the people in your community as they reorient to being together or just the gift of your full presence with your family or your roommates. It might be wrestling your way toward maturity and cultivating spiritual depth in the midst of a shallow city. Or it could be the power of worship when it's a choice, not a feeling. Remember that, that those jail cells flew open when Paul and Silas were singing in a prison at midnight when it was hard. Not when the, the band was playing their favorite song and there was caffeine coursing through their veins. It, maybe it's trusting a couple of others again, really letting them in, even after what happened last time. Maybe it means to be weak enough to discover that weakness is okay. It's even essential in the story that God's writing. Maybe it's dealing with past brokenness and beginning a journey toward forgiveness, towards your dad or your mom or your brother or your sister or your teacher or your mentor or your son or your daughter. There was even a word prayed this morning before we gathered as, as we were praying about what God would do today, that there might be a repair that begins today from a deep wound between a child and a mother. Maybe it's overcoming temptation so that we come back together stronger and more free. Because remember, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness before it called him back into the city with something to say. Where is the Spirit unhindered while I'm under house arrest? And whatever God brings to mind, wherever you glimpse the Spirit at work, that is an invitation to resurrection power. Now to get it lived.